Yeah, I mean, I, I think another analogy I liked was uh, that it's kind of like the uh, pyramids of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So we look at them and you think that, wow, that's an enormous construction engineering project, mm -hmm. given the technology they had at the time. You know, it's taking like 100 years to build one of these things, right? And they've got lots of them. And so Bitcoin is a kind of digital modern day version of this, which is we're making this single pyramid and it's huge and we keep building on tops and mm -hmm. it's getting bigger and, you know, stuff that's buried at the bottom is not getting out of there. Right, right, right. And so it does have this kind of awe-inspiring digital phenomenon that it's the biggest competition ever done. Yeah. Right? And it, it just keeps getting bigger and the competition is growing faster. Yeah. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Adam Bax, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Well, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Um, second time you've been on the show? I know you appeared once with Jason Lowry. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I currently a solo episode, though. Uh, glad to be doing it in person. We're here at Riga, the Bitcoin Baltic Honey Badger Conference, I think is yep. the name of it. Uh, sitting in this interrogation room turned podcast studio. <laughs> so, uh, by way of quick introduction, you're the CEO and co-founder of Blockstream, and you recently were getting a lot of attention for a bet you made, um, betting that I think Bitcoin breaks $100,000 USD price point before the next halving, which is scheduled or approximately going to be end of March 2024? Yeah, April, March 2024. Yeah. 
So what's going on there? Why, why the bet and uh, who's the bet with and what's the motivation for it? Um, so we were just, uh, there was just some Twitter discussion about, uh, you know, where Bitcoin price is going when. And I, you know, just looking at pr the sort of price trajectory in history between halvings, you know, we're at an unusual point where Bitcoin is lower than it would be in terms of, you know, comparisons between two cycles. Mm -hmm. And I think that is because of a lot of external factors, you know, um, the COVID, the quantitative easing, uh, supply chain disruption, Ukraine war impact on power costs, and, uh, you know, a number of DeFi failures and altcoin failures and... Mm -hmm the sort of contagion between leverage between you know different kind of crypto hedge funds like three areas capital mm. and companies that ended up lending doing unsecured lending between themselves like so it caused a lot of uh, failure and you know the mainstream media's understanding of the space is simplified so they'll just take you know one bit of bad news like you know uh, some kind of crypto hedge fund fails and they'll translate that into oh you know Bitcoin has a problem. Uh -huh, I don't know. It's not really related, but nevertheless, the market reacts because, you know, the average person listens to the mainstream media who typically has a confused viewpoint. So, in any case, um, I, w I would say absolutely, you know, that that string of bad news, which is kind of, to my view, misunderstood and overplayed in terms of its uh, impact on Bitcoin price. Bitcoin should be at a higher level now, and so, you know. People are when they when they're expecting it, they're sort of thinking, well, you know, the bull market is done for this cycle, and now we wait until after the halving. Mm -hmm. Historically, the price has picked up. You know, people assume because of the uh, the effect of the halving, that the amount of new coins coming on the market per day is cutting off, and therefore supply is restricted. If the demand stays the same, it will throw things off the balance and push the price up, and that that has tended to have an effect six to nine months after the halving. So people are kind of looking at that and I'm saying, well, you know, we should already be over a hundred thousand mm -hmm. apart from all this drama. So, you know, I think there's a reasonable expectation that we could get to a hundred thousand before the halving and maybe go a lot higher after that. So was that, that discussion and uh, somebody, you know, chimed in on Twitter saying, well, let's bet on it. So I said, okay, you know, how much would you like to bet? And he said, one million sats. So I said, fine, you know, done. And so we set the uh, the time limit at the halving itself. So it is the halving or is it the end of March? Or so initially it was like end of March, but I was like, well, no, actually I'm in the halving. Can we change it to the halving? I just, it's, that was the kind of point of the discussion. Like, Got it. And so um, I've thought about this too, because typically... Doesn't Bitcoin usually get back to its prior all-time high price around the halving? And then it peaks, like you said, six to nine months after the halving. Is mm. kind of the historic trend? Yeah, something like that. But I mean, I think, you know, also historically, um, Bitcoin, you know, before 2021 had never gone below the 200-week moving average. Uh -huh. And you know, during the COVID periods the price went below there which is kind of you know news and it's even slightly below it now uh -huh. and so, so i'd say that we're 
out of a normal range due to you know Gross. a compounding bunch of factors affecting price. Yeah. Would you expect? I've thought about this for a while too. That if having if that pattern persists, that the having sort of demarcates a bull run like six or nine months in advance. If that pattern continues to repeat, don't people just start front running that at some point and that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's some debate about, you know, the efficient market hypothesis and whether the halving should be priced in. Mm -hmm. And I think one argument for why it might not be priced in is the volatility. Mm -hmm. So one argument, my argument is, well, look, you know, all of the... Bitcoin money, i.e. the US dollar liquidity of people interested in Bitcoin, it's already deployed. People tend to get very all in, right? So they don't have spare dollars to, you know, buy more and sell them again after a price increase. They don't really want to take leverage because it's dangerous. So they don't have the capacity to take this. And so the only people who could take it are outside money. Mm-hmm. You don't really know or care about Bitcoin, but could see a kind of arbitrage and agility. And firstly, Bitcoin is probably pretty esoteric to them. But secondly, it's, you know, if you if you accept this trend, which they may be skeptical of, you've um, you've got to absorb a lot of volatility, right? So if you see something that has an 80% per year volatility, um, and you're going to you take an arbitrage, that's a, a really high risk mm-hmm. perception. So for Bitcoiners, it's okay, because you're like, oh, it will, it'll be fine in the long term. But I think it's very hard for an outsider to take. Whereas in a normal kind of pricing in scenario, let's say a government announces they're going to slash the tax on a rental property, you know, for, for landlords renting properties. Um, that's going to have an immediate effect on the property market because it's a very stable, like relatively stable market. Um, you've got a day, you can calculate the economic effect on the profitability. It, it will be priced as low vol. It's- yeah, maybe priced in the next day, right? Yeah. The world. Yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, you've also got sort of, you know, analysts and read some professional money managers that will like figure out and put a lot of money on what they think is the correct pricing. So mm-hmm. and that kind of investor is missing from the Bitcoin space mostly mm-hmm. today. Yeah, so maybe over time we'd start to see that. Yeah. I mean, another, another argument, which is, which is why a lot of people have problems with stock to flow, is that, um, you know the the percentage change of the halving is smaller each time. Yes, yeah. as, as as compared to the total coins of right. circulation, and so you say, well, it's you know it's getting so small. How could it possibly make a difference? Right. And I, I think the argument for how it could make a difference, despite that, is that you've got this hodl wave phenomena where as people you know experience a, a cycle or two in Bitcoin, they start to adapt their behavior to being more dollar cost average, buy and hold, don't trade. And so the number of coins that are immobile is also creeping up, right? So it means that the, uh, you know, percentage change is still relevant compared to the not cold stored right. coin. And another, another objection people have is like, well, you know, the, the amount of coins per day or per year produced is small relative to the daily volume traded. Right. But I would say most of the daily volume traded is speculative. It's like a zero-sum game of people like yeah. speculating, right? So that I'd say that's largely irrelevant for price formation. Yeah. That's just 
gives you liquidity if you need to buy or sell, right? And so what is relevant for price formation is people who are taking bold positions, like buying Bitcoin and holding it for long term. Mm -hmm. So they come into the market, they buy Bitcoin, they take it off the market. And so if you look at that activity, you know, proportion of market action that is dollar cost averaging, you compare that to, you know, the halving effect, then it's significant again. So from that point of view, it could perpetuate because yeah, as each four years passes, more coins got taken off the market as people adapt to dollar cost averaging. So maybe maybe it can persist to have an effect. Yeah, that makes sense. So is that an actual percentage of the coins that are being traded versus um, just a percentage of the toll? Because right. that's less relevant to it. That makes sense. You uh, okay? You tweeted recently too that you expected the difficulty adjustment to hit one zeta hash, which is a one followed by twenty one zeros, uh, perhaps as early as quarter four twenty twenty four. Um, what what is that based on, and what does that mean for Bitcoin? Obviously, you know, Bitcoin's already I think the most secure computing network in the world. This would be uh, taking it to another level, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, based on looking at, uh, you know, the last year's hash rate increase. And of course, new, more efficient miners are coming online all the time, like being manufactured and people are retiring older generation miners. So the amount of megawatts deployed may not go up as much mm -hmm. because the new miners are more efficient. But nevertheless, it's, um, you know, it's currently around 400 exahash, so it's sort of 40% of the way there. So I just thought it was, you know, a, a factor of a thousand is an interesting kind of event, right? And the last time we crossed that was going to the one exahash, which is a long time ago there. So I was kind of curious, well, when actually would the hash line be crossed? And it, you know, it's such an unusual ISO uh, prefix that mm -hmm. people have not heard of Zetas, right? So, so I was like, well, you know, now we now have to add that to a lexicon. Like, what is a Zeta? How many zeros is that, right? And, uh, because in physics and stuff like this, kind of numbers don't usually come about, right? So, so yeah, it looks like you know with the hash rate increase, it, it depends, of course, on the on the price appreciation and things like that as mm -hmm. to how fast uh, hash rate grows. At the moment, it's growing faster than it otherwise would because people bought a lot of miners in the 20, mm -hmm. 21, 22 period, and they have excess inventory which they haven't been able to get online yet because. Mm -hmm. You know, there was in twenty twenty one there was a shortage of miners, so people bid yeah. up the price. Uh, I think in twenty twenty two it came to be a surplus of well, I mean, a shortage of places to host miners. Right. And so, you know, the success inventory, people have already bought it. It will make money if you can get it online. So they're obviously gonna put it online. Uh -huh. And, you know, I think that the you know, Bitcoin revenue has increased a lot this year. Like the the hash rate is up 50%, uh, you know, from year to date, like from January. And uh, the price is up 70 to 80%. So, you know, the mining revenue is up 25, 30%. And the mining activity is dominated by input costs, power, and operation. Mm -hmm. So if your revenue goes up 20 to 30%, you know, and your, your input costs are, you know, 80, 90% of the revenue, your profitability could be up by, you know, a big factor, mm -hmm. like two or three times potentially. So... I would say already mining is a lot more profitable than it was in December last year, mm. but still not as profitable as during uh, 2021, uh, as the bull market kicked in and the price went up and the profitability went up a lot faster than manufacturers could make new miners to put on weight. Huh. 
this dovetails nicely into something you brought up on the panel yesterday that I thought was interesting. Um, you know, we, we often describe the having dynamic that, you know, less supply coming, less supply coming onto the market, holding demand constant puts upward pressure on price. But you made this further point that as Bitcoin's price rises, Bitcoin miners tend to become less inclined to sell their Bitcoin to cover their operating costs, right? Which drives Bitcoin's price even higher. So there's another one of these self-reinforcing dynamics at play. Um, can you expand a bit on that? Like, to what extent is that just something you've, you've seen miners doing, or is this something? Um, do you think they're then speculating on further price appreciation in Bitcoin? That's why they keep more of it on their balance sheet, or? And, and does that dynamic unwind, right, when the market starts to go the other direction? Yeah, I mean, it does unwind. So, so basically, you know, there are individuals with, you know, garage of miners or a small warehouse and private companies doing prop mining, so i.e. buying the miners, mining the Bitcoin and trying to keep as many as they can, and public market companies as well. And you can... Like at least with the public ones, you can look at their quarterly reports and they'll disclose, you know, how many Bitcoin they have in inventory, how much cash, how much mm. hash rate they have online, that kind of thing. So you can see, you can like watch the effect rate. And so generally they they tend to want to keep as many Bitcoin as they can, right? Um, but in a bear market, the profitability drops. So the percentage of Bitcoin as they mine that they have to sell to cover the power or operating costs goes up. And so, you know, maybe in a bear market, they have to sell 75% of the coins so they can only keep a quarter. Uh -huh. And in a bull market, they then keep 75%. And so that means that as, you know, if the price starts to go up faster than people can get miners online, um, they will be able to keep more of the coins. Uh -huh. And the fact that then, you know, that, that takes another seller off the market, which it's kind of like a halving, right? So that will also, uh, you know, and it could be significant. There's, there's a lot of coins mined, right? So I mean, maybe that could be more significant than a halving even, right? So it is, it is another driver of kind of big Bitcoin macro volatility that the price rising kind of has a few effects that cause it to rise further. Uh -huh. I mean, it's certainly, you know, Bitcoin is a bit of a giffing good where, you know, if it goes up, people like it more. Right. So, you know, it gets in the news, people hear Bitcoin's going up, they buy it. Lots of people are momentum traders. Apparently, institutions like to buy asset classes that have a bigger pool of liquidity. So if it's bigger, then they say, well, we could trade that. If it's too small, they think they can't. So there are like multiple things that cause people to chase momentum. But the miners actually have a, a kind of direct uh, economic reason. And then one that... Price, so say we get a bull market peak and Bitcoin's price starts to reverse, the miners then start to liquidate that inventory they've accumulated, and that does that then suppress price down more quickly? Like, is there a flip side to that dynamic? Yeah, I mean there is, and and actually leverage makes it worse too. So you know, of course, as as the you know if 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 they've got into a bull market where they're able to keep seventy five percent of the coins, uh, you get another pullback. Maybe they get into the position where they have to sell 70% of the coins again. And so now they're selling more daily. But what's worse is the Bitcoin ecosystem is generally undercapitalized. So, you know, a company like Tesla or Ford or Sony, anybody making physical goods, they have uh, very deep pools of liquidity where they can raise corporate bonds to 
you know, in, in a Bitcoin example, build miners, build power infrastructure, build inventory, and Bitcoin doesn't have that. And so, you know, they could, when people see a gap in the market that, you know, mining has become very profitable and they don't have the cash liquidity, they'll borrow it. And they don't like selling Bitcoin, so they borrow it against Bitcoin at high interest rates because it's a novel market, or they borrow it against uh, the ASICs themselves and things like that. And so the problem then is in a in a bear market scenario, not only do they have to sell more of the coins they're mining, but they might have to sell coins they mined before, like inventory, to pay off a loan or something, right? Because they made a bet, which was that they could borrow against Bitcoin to expand their mining uh-huh. and end up with more Bitcoin. But they knew they would eventually have to pay off a loan. They just hoped that was a higher price. So if it turns out to be a lower price, now they will sell a big chunk of Bitcoin. You saw some miners do that. You can see their inventory has yeah. dropped. So I think you know that was probably part of the late last year pullback is yeah. people selling public mining companies and private ones selling thousands of Bitcoin in a, you know, in a period of time. Yeah, and some lenders taking possession of the, the miners as well. Right, right. Yes. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. There's, there's so many of these self-reinforcing dynamics of Bitcoin because the supply just is fixed, you know, doesn't change. So sort of drives speculation, but also you're not getting any relief for these market movements through the supply as with other commodities. Right. Yeah, I mean, you think about like versus gold is quite interesting to make an analogy with because while people say Bitcoin is digital gold and it has a lot of similarities... In a gold bull market, the gold miners will, you know, ramp their gold production up. Mm-hmm. They'll work shifts, you know, three shifts a day, seven days a week. Whereas in a sideways market, they might just work in a day, right? Or they'll have a more expensive mine, but it's not worth getting rid, like abandoning, but it's only profitable at a certain price, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll reopen it, right? So so there is some adaption on the upside, which can increase the supply, which will you know, sort of damp the bull market. And, and the same the other way, you know, if, if the price is down, they'll slow down the production. Bigger yeah. never slows. So just right. Get it. right, right, right. That's super interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Um, Okay, you tweeted this recently too. Uh, This was a retweet actually talking about how Bitcoin fixes the duck curve which is a mismatch between periods of peak energy demand and periods of peak renewable energy production. Uh, we just did an episode recently on how Bitcoin helps actually stabilize energy grids. Um, how do you, I, this is such a misunderstood point. Like typically the narrative on Bitcoin energy is Bitcoin waste energy or consumes too much energy. 
Whereas I think the truth is actually kind of the opposite, right? It's stabilizing power grids and, and solving these market dislocations. How do you approach this topic for normies? I mean, you're trying to unpack kind of Bitcoin meeting energy and what the, what, what the benefits are. Yeah, it's a difficult one because the, I think the energy market, you know, we come at it from a Bitcoin perspective, so we're learning about energy markets, mm -hmm. but it's its own specialized field that the average person or even the average savvy investor doesn't necessarily know much about it's mm -hmm. a niche market. But effectively, it turns out that there are, there are a number of factors that affect the energy market. One is most energy generation is built to overcapacity mm -hmm. because they have to build for peak demand, which means that typically, you know, in a given region, half of the power is like either pay somebody to get rid of it because they can't turn the power plant mm -hmm. off quickly enough, or they just waste it. They don't use the capacity they have. And so, you know, the concept there's a shortage of power is not really true. It's just it's it doesn't match demand, and there's so there's lots of it thrown away. And the other thing is it's it's very hard to transport it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's lots of stranded energy. So in China, particularly, they did these kind of big state planning efforts where they built a hydro dam, thinking they were going to build a town in the next fifty years, and then that didn't happen. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's like gigawatts of power stranded in the mountains. And there are, you know, there are countries that have massive oversupply. So uh, actually just the Quebec province of Canada has enough, has a lot of hydropower and it has enough unused hydropower from existing built dams to power the entire Bitcoin network. Mm. But the power company is a crown corporation. So it's a government corporation and they have some kind of uh, restrictions on supply of power to new Bitcoin mining projects, which is which is the wrong way around. I think, you know, countries like El Salvador, Oman, uh, have uh, taken a more enlightened view, which is that, you know, originally we had the gold as a global standard, and then with the discovery of petroleum and oil and black gold, and so that, you know, countries with that natural resource seized the opportunity and were able to kind of transform their, you know, their prominence in the world. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity for that with digital gold, which is a natural resource, mm -hmm. is abundant cheap power. And so, you know, countries that seize that opportunity can, you know, and hold on to it and go for it, you know, for a decade or two could really change things for themselves. So I think there's a real prospect that, you know, if El Salvador, you know, proceeds with this kind of billion dollar state mining project, and if you look at, you know, Bitcoin price history, how many Bitcoin they could mine, you know, within a decade, they could potentially change their kind of uh, per capita wealth to be on par with a major European country mm -hmm. from being an emerging market country. So it's it's really possible for countries that seize on a a new wave, a new innovation in a transition period in 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 a global sense can change things for themselves. But also, it's possible for you know major developed countries to. Uh, not act very enlightened and like throw away an opportunity. And unlike gold, unused power doesn't stay in the ground, it's thrown away, right? right. So it's not like you can go back and get a benefit from it. Yeah. And it gets harder to mine over time. So it's really something where you have to act in the moment. Yeah. It's a great point. Uh, it seems like there's so much money being left on the table, right? Where energy is being curtailed or, or excess capacity is not being used. Well, I mean, I think the other point is, um, you know, historically, you know, for hundreds of years, 
um, access to power capacity is strongly correlated with the wealth of nations. Yes. And you know, it's true at any point in time, and it's true over time. Mm -hmm. And that stretches through the you know, Industrial Revolution and before mm -hmm. um, gasoline and into you know, power, nuclear power. And so I think we should have every reason to suppose that will continue in the future. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, governments have the sort of policy mandate to look at, you know, renewable energy and things like that. But ultimately, the future is going to need more power. And policy kind of desires don't translate into construction of power generation. Mm -hmm. And so the way, you know, so really you just need to look at ways to finance power. And I think the Bitcoin mining machine is a financial model that can fund power infrastructure. Yeah. So I think ultimately, you know, Bitcoin could end up being a solution in building lots and lots of power infrastructure, which ends up being used in the future. Yeah, with general use. Right, right, right. Yeah, so just this like almost global incentive program to just build out more capacity because yep. you can monetize it more quickly, right? Right. Um, also, you can... Uh, what was the other point that someone made that uh, a lot of these... A lot of these stations would be built, but they're not actually tapped into the grid, for instance, or have you a dislocation and when they can actually start selling into the grid, or well, now you could just start mining Bitcoin immediately yeah. right, to, to bootstrap some of the development costs. For sure, yeah. I mean, it, it's actually a very nice match because if you, if you think about the hypothetical of building you know, a hydro plant or a solar field or a wind farm or some kind of combination for a new region that you're expecting, you know, people to move there, an industrial park to get built, you know, you build the power plant and chances are there's no use for the first year because grid bureaucracy connected right. you to it. And then afterwards, maybe it ramps up slowly for five years. Right. If it even happens on schedule, right, the demand. And so it makes it quite hard to, you know, figure out when you're going to repay it. Yeah. And it makes it more challenging to raise financing. Whereas Bitcoin says, Bitcoin is basically pledging to buy all unused power on day one, whether it's grid connected or not, and absorbable all unused power as you grow to terms. So you're it's much easier to make a, a profitable business case with that buyer right and buy. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. See, we always we typically say energy buyer of last resort, but in that case, it's like energy buyer of first resort. Right, just they're ready yeah. to buy on day one. So, yep. um, okay, you recently tweeted. This is this is a good one. While mined Bitcoin aren't visual like a Picasso, they are unique like a snowflake under microscope. The leading zeros are aesthetically pleasing. The statistical improbability, the thermodynamic cost of finding them, it's like a computational it's like computational art, a digital unique rare diamond to marvel at. Unquote. Yeah. Uh, one of your more philosophical tweets, which I really enjoyed. Um, I gave a talk here the other day, yesterday in Riga actually, and I was going into this whole thing about Bitcoin is right. And when you get into the, the, the three approaches I took to that was Bitcoin is right in the sense of the word, right? Like it's true and correct. You know, it's a, uh, indisputable, unalterable record keeping system. So it's always correct, almost by definition. I also said it's right in the sense of a private property, right? It's probably the strongest form of property humans have ever had. And then it's also right in the sense that 
you know, to the extent stealing is wrong, then Bitcoin is right because it makes stealing more difficult, basically. And so kind of like a morally righteous uh, tool, one might say, which is a bit, I don't know, that's a bit of a murky point for me because you consider the tools typically to be amoral, yet somehow, you know, printing money is bad and wrong in all these ways. So if money, Bitcoin is money we can't print, then it's sort of right in that way. I don't know, I'm still kind of wrestling with that one. But anyways, when you get into the etymology of the word right, you find this uh, this proto-Indo-European word. Actually, I'm sorry, it's a Sanskrit word, rita, R-T-A. And it's where we get words like arithmetic, aristocrat, art, rhetoric, worth, ritual. So there's like this deep connection um, with kind of like rightness, beauty, order, <laughs> Uh, and things like art. Uh, and, and so when you describe Bitcoin as art, I think that's fascinating. I just want to, like, what is it, what is it that's so valuable about art, first of all? Like, I, I'm often mystified that people go to see the Mona Lisa, right? It's just like oil on a canvas, yet it's priceless, right? Like money can't even buy the thing. What is it about art What's it doing for us? And then is Bitcoin art? And is it providing a similar feature? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a great, I, I can appreciate the aesthetics of art, but I'm not somebody that has ever spent a significant amount of money on art. But as I understand it, um, I mean, there's a history of art patronage where wealthy people would donate to an artist because they like the works they're producing and think it makes a better environment and you know help it improves people's enjoyment but um so i i guess the the presumably what drives that kind of art when it's resold is is scarcity and authenticity kind of thing right and so those uh famous renaissance painters the the art pieces are generally sold and have a, a huge price appreciation after the person's deceased because they know that's scarce, right? Right, right, right. Plus it's, you know, they can do a very good job of authenticity testing it. Mm -hmm. That kind of uniqueness. And, I mean, I think, of course, we, with Bitcoin, we consider it, it's de facto fungible and that's an extremely desirable property for, for money. But, you know, even though it's, you don't really look at it and it's a mathematical thing there is uniqueness in each mind block right. and say you know I, I was thinking you could almost visualize it right say you know there's there's some hash in there that led to leading zeros and of course you know trillions of them were discarded and this, this was found right and say you know a loose analogy is like maybe diamonds or something so i think there's you know it's basically formed when there's extremely high pressure to, to create them, uh, they're relatively rare because of the conditions or something, but they're sort of still unique, relatively unique pairs, right? And so Bitcoin technically also has this uniqueness of the uniqueness of the block that mined it, and it causes actually, you know, people tend to think of older blocks as like more mysterious or interesting because mm -hmm. there's less known about uh, early history, but actually the more recent ones have a lot more work involved. So in terms of the sheer impressiveness of the amount of computation that went into creating that, actually the most recent ones are mm -hmm. the most impressive and it's a kind of uh, convention that we treat, you know, old ones that were by today's standard extremely cheap to mine mm -hmm. as financially equivalent to the 
expensive to mine ones. So yeah, I mean, you, you, so I was thinking it could be interesting, and this was a concept going back to kind of the fingerprints or checksums. So some sort of communicate secure communications uh, software shows you a checksum that you can confirm that you're talking to the right person. Like in Signal, there's a a checksum in PGP. There's a checksum and Going back many years ago, one of the cypherpunks had proposed uh, transforming the checksum using some kind of deterministic algorithm into like a snowflake pen, uh -huh. and just so that it would be easier to visually look at it and see if it's the same, rather than, you know, like reading hexadecimal uh -huh. digits, so like trying to compare if this massive string of numbers is the same. So it occurred to me that, you know, with the, the enormous work that goes into creating a block, with so many leading zeros, there might be, you know, somebody creative, like mathematically and programming and art, a way to, you know, transform that into something visual uh -huh. that preserves, you know, a visual uh, inspection of the number of zeros. Yeah. It's, I, well, I wonder about this too, with like just art, the aesthetic value of art. Um, giving people like a window into the transcendent perhaps something that like it's hard hard to get into words right what beauty is um you know we see it in nature we see it in in humans we see it in uh different forms of artwork but it seems like art is trying to capture that moment to capture that beauty mm -hmm. that is uh I don't know, like the raw the raw experience of beauty itself in a way and i you know, I don't know what it is about Bitcoin, but it, it there is definitely something transcendent about it. Like it's almost transcendent by definition, right? No one can change or alter it, and so it transcends our control or politics, at least. So, I wonder if that plays into it at all. Like to just see this marvel working, and and we can't really do anything about it. Like it's just TikTok next block kind of makes it like an engineering masterpiece or something yeah i mean I, I think another analogy i liked was uh that it's kind of like the uh, pyramids of egypt mm -hmm. so we look at them and you think that wow that's an enormous construction engineering project mm -hmm. given the technology they had at the time you know, it must take like 100 years to build one of these things right and they've got lots of them and so bitcoin is a kind of digital modern day version of this which is we're making this single pyramid and it's huge, and we keep building on tops, and mm -hmm. it's getting bigger. And you know, stuff that's buried at the bottom is not getting over there. Right, right, right. And say so it does have this kind of awe-inspiring digital phenomenon that it's the biggest competition ever done. Yeah, right? and it, it just keeps getting bigger, and the competition is growing faster. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a good analogy, but then, as you said earlier, the blocks are more computationally expensive. The more recent blocks are more computationally expensive. So it's kind of like, if you're using that pyramid analogy, the blocks are getting bigger as we go up the pyramid, uh, right? I'm like, yeah. maybe like an inverse pyramid or something. It's Well, I mean, I guess it's growing bigger, faster or something. Like there's more weight play. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Or the blocks are denser or something. But yeah, something, yeah. That's very, that's unusual, right? Because most physical structures would be the opposite, right? You'd have the heavier, right? More foundational materials at the bottom and the lighter stuff up top. But, um. That's interesting. Bitcoin's growing in that sort of counterintuitive direction. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. 
In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, okay, this is a funny tweet, which I appreciated. You said that the tree of Bitcoin immutability must be watered from time to time with the salty tears of failed contentious fork proposers and urgent innovators. UASF never forget. Uh, UASF, user activated soft fork, I believe is the acronym there. What, and the, the kind of like a play on quote there, right? This is a, what is it? The, the tree of liberty must occasionally be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was this tweet in regard to, and what, I think the U UASF is kind of a callback to the block size wars era. Um, Maybe you could just speak to, to what this tweet was about. and Yeah, I mean, so the, I think before the block size wars, um, people were less clear on the kind of who was in charge. Mm. Like, could miners make a change to the protocol? Right. Or could developers make a change to the protocol? And it turned out, both of those viewpoints, and people had some mix, right? They were thinking, well, it's a bit of both. But in practice, and, and a block size war was really about a collection of companies thinking that they would like to bend Bitcoin towards their economic advantage to help their business grow and to make it simple and cheap to have more transactions. And so what it turned out is the, is the market prevailed. So the investors had control. And... That's very interesting because it says that, you know, who, who decides the rules? Well, the buyer. So it's right. kind of like the labor theory of value fallacy, right? So, you know, if, if I'm buying gold and I kind of say that it's really gold and, you know, some miner digs up some lead and says, here, buy this. I'm like, well, I don't want it. Uh, I don't care that it costs you a lot of money to dig up the lead. That's not what I'm buying, right? right? So it turns out, you know, the buyer decides and... The way that people say Bitcoin is they run a full node. And if their full node says that's not Bitcoin, they don't even notice, right? You know, it just gets dropped. Um, and the miners, of course, very ch quickly change viewpoints because they lose money fast if they do the wrong thing. And so what actually, you know, the UASF was a situation related to that where the, some of the miners, I think, you know, maybe not from their own volition, but because other companies tried to lobby them, uh, try to block a soft fork as a kind of power play or veto, right? Mm -hmm. So the segue of fork. And so USF was the user said, no, we want the soft fork and we're going to activate it at this height. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you better follow along or you'll right. fork yourself off the network. And, you know, everything fell into place, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think that 
it's easy, you know, sadly, it seems possible for people to forget lessons of history. And, you know, there's a tendency amongst innovators to want to improve things and change things, which is fine if there's consensus for it. But if there's no consensus for it, um, then the way Bitcoin works is things stay the same by default. And, you know, when some people see that momentum that Bitcoin is immutable and it will just keep the same way unless everybody opts in. You know, it's typically an opt-in change, right? So you don't mm -hmm. have to use it if you don't want it. But also Bitcoin doesn't even tend to want to accept opt-in changes unless everybody likes it. Right. And so some people, when faced with that reality, you know, get frustrated and go back to the, well, let's lobby the miners to do it anyway kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was a bit of that stuff brewing. So I, that was what caused me to uh, sort of connect those two quotes together to uh, say, because I, I mean, it, it really is the case that everybody, I mean, it's a, it's a curious phenomenon. It goes back to what you were saying about truth, right? Which is, you know, Bitcoin doesn't care. It's a mathematical artifact that mm -hmm. is completely unsympathetic. So, you know, unlike the Bitcoin Genesis block quote about moral hazard and quantitative easing, you know, you can't plead with the Bitcoin network. It's just going to keep mining blocks. You're like, oh, that was a mistake. I want to undo that transaction. Yeah, yeah. It just keeps mining. Or I want to change Bitcoin. Like, yeah. it doesn't care. Yeah. And the economy of all the investors, they just want to, you know, preserve their spending power and keep the Bitcoin properties. So there'd be lots of cases where people, you know, often well-meaning of like, come and try to change Bitcoin in their view for the better. But, you know, if there wasn't widespread consensus for it they've tended to you know kind of get disillusioned or you know or some people like calm down they say oh i'm sorry i didn't understand right let's let's be more patient and some people just like rage quit when it happens yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know it depends on the personalities but basically you know anybody who went up against bitcoin and tried yeah. to fight the momentum lost. yeah that's just such a great point and um it uh, again, I told you, I've, I've just been getting through that book, The Block Size War, recently, and it's, it's such a good book. And there was a, like, to echo your point, there was no, no one knew who controlled Bitcoin or who, no one knew what would happen, basically, in the, in the event of uh, a fork, right? And so this, it reminds me of that old saying that in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. You know, everyone was kind of looking like, well, is it the miners? or is it the developers, but really it was this kind of non-mining node that really made, right. kind of chose ultimately. Yeah. And so um, what, it's interesting, we had to like go through that to, it's almost like Bitcoin had to learn about itself, how it really works in a way, at least from a uh, the community aspect, the community standpoint. Is that something we're gonna go through again? Like, do you think we go through another block size war? Will there be a different, will it be a privacy war? Will it be something else? Do you see more contentious uh, splits on the horizon for Bitcoin in, well, in the near or distant future? I, w I was hoping not in the sense that I think everybody, whichever viewpoint they had coming in, learned something from that. Yeah. And the fact that we've seen it happen once before and what determinatively resolved it changes the game theory of what will be tried in the future because people are going to say well you know we're not going to try that because look how that works out yeah right and say so before they tried it because they they mistakenly thought it would work like mm. they lobbied the miners and that didn't work 
So they're probably not going to try that again. Or so you would hope, right? Unless yeah. people have short memories and they, yeah. they think, you know, they're going to try it again. So I hope they don't try it again because it, it was, you know, both a risky period, at least in the moment, because yeah. you didn't know, you weren't 100% sure how it would resolve, but also extremely bullish moment because it showed that Bitcoin's immutability was much more mathematically guaranteed mm. than was understood before. And so you see people that, you know, even joined Bitcoin afterwards, like Michael Saylor, mm. like talk enthusiastically about a historical event to say, yeah. well, that was really the thing right. that cemented Bitcoin's mathematical immutability. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it had to be put to the test, right? Because it's just kind of theoretical up until that point. Yeah. Until you went through the war kind of to to really see what it uh, was made of. And it's it's such an interesting feature of Bitcoin that up until now, everyone that's tried to game it, right, or bend it or twist it to their own advantage, even large players, well-capitalized players, influential players, like the the best of the best that can possibly succeed in that, right? they try to game Bitcoin, they end up getting played. Like, they, they lose yeah. out. I mean, it, it was, uh, I commented on this at... Actually, it was this conference in a different venue, uh, probably 2017 or something, or a panel after it resolved, like as to what happened. And you know, my summary was that you know, if you think about it, that was the perfect storm. You know, mm -hmm. it was like supposedly by you know public position, the majority of the miners by hash rate, yeah. a big array of exchanges, payment processors, a right. uh, number of users, and it was like. A perfect storm. We were taking and, the moral high ground too, right? Trying to save Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, some of them genuinely thought they were, you know, doing a good thing yeah. to improve transaction processing. But despite that, you know, the users, the activist investors won a day. And I mean, I think, you know, some people think, well, maybe it's ambiguous what really happened. But I think what actually happened was that, you know, if, if you don't trade... If you don't act in the market, the market doesn't see you. Right. Just like, and I think the majority of people, you know, because you could, there were futures, right? So you could sell the fork future before it existed and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So you could trade this thing. And most people, like before or after, because there were forks that came out of it, were confused and just held both halves passively. Because they didn't know what was going to happen, didn't know what was going to happen before, or didn't know yeah. what happened afterwards. And so they didn't influence the market. And the users were sort of, you know, the intolerant minorities. So, you know, they didn't want this to happen. They thought if, you know, this contentious change was pushed through, it would like seriously or maybe permanently damage what Bitcoin could be. And so to them, it was do or die, life or death, mm -hmm. right? And so they were kind of like the the 300 spawns in the film 300, mm -hmm. and they were going for it, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing that was going to stand in their way. And the people that wanted to do this for like, you know, business reasons, you know, they wanted it, but not that badly. They didn't want to die for it, right? Right, right, right. And so, you know, they didn't trade it because they're worried about losing money. No. And so, you know, the fork future was 10 to one against this big array of forces, right? Mm -hmm. Because the guys that really felt strongly about it went for it like they sold you know everything right yeah. and they shorted it and all this kind of stuff and of course after it just continued right so it was 10 to 1 now you know like 10 percent of bitcoin's price and it's one percent and now it's like 0.1 yeah. percent so really 
really interesting, but I think it's probably somewhat common, like more common than people suppose about what decides complex issues in society mm. is that most people don't really know what's going on yeah. or they don't care and they just wait to see what the result is. Some people care a bit for like an economic reason, but some people really care. Yeah. And it's people that really care that are going to make the decision because nobody else is, right? They're not, they're not deciding, they're observing, yeah. or they're mildly care, but not enough. And so the person with conviction, so uh, Vijay Boy, as he said some quote, like when the, um, I forget the exact words, but basically, you know, uh, maybe we should pull it up when we could. Could it? It's about like the intransigent minority. Well, it's like so when the non-committed meet on the field of battle, but it was such a good <laughs> thing that this I, is something. That's why you're looking that up. I mean, this is something the author Taleb wrote about. You know, he calls it the minority rule um, that we see these obstinate or intransigent minorities often driving big, big outsized social movements and changes. And so it was interesting to see that occur in Bitcoin as well. Uh, also, while you're looking that up, another just question that kept eating me in the back of my mind as I'm getting through that book was, was it ever actually about block size? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because um, I think in some ways it was more about bypassing the consensus process uh-huh. than the payload itself. So even if the payload, I, the the feature that was proposed, would have been like relatively harmless or like mm-hmm. acceptable, the fact that somebody would try to force it on people, mm-hmm. like push a change, right. would undermine the immutability. So here we go. So he said this, I think in 2017, like, when the two armies meet in the field of battle, the pragmatists are always going to flee from the adversary with conviction. Hmm. And so, you know, if you think about markets as, you know, a kind of economic battlefield, I think that that's what happened, right? That these, the Bitcoiners were really, con- like the people that had a strong view that changing, like eroding the change process assurance that be no changes without consensus, thought that was the end of Bitcoin and they really cared about Bitcoin. Right. So they were, you know, fighting that thing to the death. And the other people, like most people were not active in the markets, they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And the other players were kind of mild, right? They were like, it was a nice to have, or it would help their business. So ultimately, if they could see that there was going to be some kind of, you know, destructive outcome, mm-hmm. they kind of backed off, right? They're like, well, okay, if they feel that strongly, we'll... we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, this is, uh, reminds me of Sun Tzu and the Art of War. This is something like when, yeah. you, when you have a enemy cornered, like don't press them because they, they have nothing to lose, right? they they'll fight you to the death basically. And that's kind of like the value of Bitcoin maximalists in a way. It's like they're right. so much life energy invested in this thing and to preserve the immutability properties of it is to defend what it is. Right. So, you, you know, you won't make any compromises effectively. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's much more than, you know, some savings or something. I yeah. think people are really philosophically attached to the, yeah, the kind of rare sunshine or the hope for humanity in the future yes. that this technology enables that they don't want to see it like, you know, destroyed or potentially mortally wounded in its early stages through some like mild corporate interest or something. So right. they were like, that has to stop. 
Yeah. And it has to stop right now because if we destroy this now, society destroys this now, is maybe not repairable. I know we lose this clip. So they really meant it. Like, don't yeah. mess it up. Yeah, they succeeded. Kind of yeah. against all, they were, the odds were against them. It looked they, like it. did it look really like, yeah. yeah. And then, so it's a really good book. Really yeah. good book. Um, Adam, I, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, great, always great to talk to you. Like, um, are you doing more of these events this year? Are you going to like Bitcoin Amsterdam and, and yeah, I should be at Bitcoin Amsterdam as well. Pretty cool. I'll see you there. Um, where can people find you on the internet? So Adam Threus on Twitter. So probably the main uh, place and blockstream.com for you know different technologies that blockstream makes. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. It's fine.